in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 14. In all honesty, we're even going to move beyond some of that as we have just this week and next week to conclude a very kind of high-level study of 1st and 2nd Samuel, what I call from struggle to strength. I want to welcome every single one of you here this morning to Big Woods Bible Church as we were lifting up our voices in worship. I was thinking just how blessed we are to be able to gather like this, to, to sing together, to worship together, to have the Word of God um, preached so that we can learn, that we can listen to the Lord. That we have the Spirit of God present with us this morning. God has blessed us in amazing ways that we have the hope, regardless of how difficult or dark it looks in the world around us, we have the hope of salvation that is offered through a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We are blessed beyond measure. Then just like just being able to walk in here, to be able to, to see one another and hear we have many blessings. Tomorrow we get a day off. That's a blessing. I'm surprised you're actually even here today because you have a day off. Little blessings. Has anyone picked up on the, the change in the Lucky Charms recently? They have added more marshmallows. I'm averaging two to three at times, four marshmallows per spoonful. Impressive. That is not luck, okay? That is all common grace and blessing from the Lord. I have other pastors going to shoot me for heresy on that, I'm sure. Everywhere we look is God's blessing on our lives. We have before us a text that, in all honesty, I will read portions of it and tell you the rest. It is heavy. It honestly is. But I know that if it's in God's word, it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so we will work our way through a very heavy text, but by God's grace, we will learn. My, my heart's burden this morning, as we launch into a parenting class in the next Several weeks, our book of the month, obviously focusing on the home. This message, my heart's burden this morning is for the condition of homes and families and how we need God's help, how we need God's help to be faithful and obedient in that area of responsibility. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray and ask for God's help before we dive into this text. <clears throat> Father, we are most grateful for the day that you have given to us another day. This is the day the Lord hath made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you, Lord, for your word that guides and directs, that is a light into our path. Father, we pray right now as we will look at our homes and our families. We thank you for the incredible blessing of children and grandchildren, but we know, Lord, there's also a great responsibility to lead them and guide them, to teach them, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, we confess in our fallen nature and our sinfulness, it's hard and we struggle. 
The enemy is doing everything that he can to destroy and to distract and reclaim, Lord, victory. Reclaim, Lord, the powerful shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us strength to continue on in the battle and to battle well. Father, I, I pray specifically for, for dads who are leading their homes, maybe for single moms that have been thrust into a place of having to raise children alone. God, I would ask, Lord, that you'd be with them. I just pray, Lord, right now, as I, I think of our brother and sister, Jared and Amy McLean, and the kids, and I thank you, Lord, for the example that they are. And I pray, Lord, for strength for them in this hour, that we would minister and come alongside. Be a blessing to them. Father, we need to hear from you. I would ask for help, that you would guide my words, that everything that is said and done would, would stir the affections people's hearts towards you, Jesus. We ask this in his strong and amazing, powerful name. Amen and amen. Okay, we can remember so far in our study, we can remember David as a great shepherd. We can remember David as a great warrior. Remember David as a great musician, as a great poet. We can remember David as a great king. But one thing that we cannot do is that we cannot remember David as a great husband or a great father. And this is really, really sad. We can learn from David. We can learn from David. And hopefully we have to have faith in a big God. We can learn from David to extend grace to people that maybe don't deserve it. We can learn from David how to worship. We can learn from David how to pray. We can learn from David how to confess. But we cannot learn from David how to lead a home or lead a family. And that's even more sad. I was thinking about it. Why, why is this portion of David's life so touchy for us? Why is this portion of David's life so tragic for us? Because David, like many of you that are sitting here this morning as fathers, many of you as parents, many of you as leaders are incredibly influential people, both directly and indirectly, both positively or negatively. You see, when God created mankind, he created children young ones to respond to and to reflect the influence of a father. A man can have very little to even no influence in his personal or professional life. But the day that he becomes a daddy, oh, I remember it well when they put this ugly, squirming, squishy little thing in my arm. I was a terrified 22-year-old. The day that we become a daddy, all of that changes. A man can have a lot of influence in his personal life and professional life. He can work hard outside the home to achieve and to succeed. But do you realize that your children oftentimes do not know that? In all honesty, I hate to burst your bubble, they really don't care 
about how influential that is outside of the home. As far as your child is concerned, what you are the most influential person in the world to them. This is true regardless of a man's intentions, regardless even of his presence. Remember I said both positively or negatively. The story is told of a group of people who were involved in prison ministry. And they decided to provide cards for inmates on Mother's Day. And the response was absolutely overwhelming. Almost all of the inmates showed up to sign and to send a card off to their mother. The event was so successful, they decided to follow it up that June to do the same thing again on Father's Day. And almost no one participated. The difference, the difference as Vody Bauckham calls it, is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. He writes this, and I quote, both in terms of the men who are absent from their children's lives, a major indicator of future incarceration, and in terms of the culture's slow, steady slide into the abyss of radical feminism and anti-masculinity. It's a two-edged sword. Fathers are not there. And the culture argues increasingly that they are not necessary. In the midst of all of it are men, both young and old, who are walking into fatherhood amid the confusion and degradation, trying to figure out just what this all means. Thankfully, we have before us what? We have before us the Word of God. The owner's manual. The instruction book. We can look to the Word of God for instructions on how to, what, raise children. We can go immediately to Proverbs. Train up a child in the way that he should go. We can go to Ephesians. What, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. One would also think that we could automatically go to the giants of our faith. But as we have been learning, the Bible does a lot of things. But one thing the Bible does not do is hide the many weaknesses and sins of the people within its pages. Especially when it comes to this area. Especially when it comes to the area of fatherhood and parenting. Now the list is long and depressing. Adam was passive. Noah got drunk. Abraham doubted God. Isaac played favorites. Jacob was a cheat, was a deceiver. Moses had some serious anger issues. Eli refused to correct his rebellious sons. David, you would think that a man after God's own heart would get it right. But he's no better. Perhaps he's even the worse. If you recall in our study of chapters 11 and 12, because of David's sin with Bathsheba committing adultery. And then he has what? Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed committing murder. We know that Nathan the prophet, what? 
what predicts the consequences. He says that the sword shall never depart from your house. And he makes this statement, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will raise up evil. Automatically, I was going to the actions and behaviors of a two and a half year old or a three year old. They get curtain climbers. They, they, my dad called us curtain climbers because at three years old, I could literally climb up the curtains. That's just what? That's just disobedience and evil. And that's not really what we're talking about here. The sword shall never depart. Like, what exactly does that mean? The sword is reserved for battle. And yet something, what? Actually, the sword comes closer. It comes home. Evil from within. You know, it seems quite descriptive of the condition of homes today. You realize that sadly, for many millions of homes and families, that they are not, homes are not places of rest. Homes today are not places of sanctuary and solitude as I believe God had designed for them to be. Instead, homes today are places of conflict. Homes today are places of anger and arguing and resentment and chaos. Colin Smothers, who is the director, executive director of the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, writes this. He says, if flying straight and level, if flying straight and level is God's design and revealed will, then every normalization of alternate trajectories contributes to a moral vertigo. The story of mankind in our fallenness is rejecting God's word. Just think about some of the many immoralities that are not only accepted, but currently legal in our Time, abortion, gay marriage, no-fault divorce. Not only is our society telling us these things are good and should be celebrated, but our governments have extended them now legal sanction. Oh, it's just a glimpse of what's happening around us. Thankfully, we have the Word of God. But if you were to take a quick glimpse at what? Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and we have what? Adultery and murder. We continue on into chapters 13 and 14. And in all honesty, you'd say, wait, wait a minute, what is happening here? It gets worse. Literally before us in these chapters, we have rape. We have incest. We have more murder. We have more rebellion, more death. But I'm so thankful, so thankful that the, our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father doesn't leave us there. But actually, we can and we should learn from all of this mess that is before us. There is an old saying that goes like this. If you're going to dance, you have to pay the fiddler. I've never danced to a fiddler before, but it sounds kind of fun to tell you the truth. I think what there is fun for a season if you're going to indulge in sin, as David did, you will have to suffer the consequences. 
Yes, undoubtedly we know that what? Through confession of our sin and acknowledgement of the forgiveness that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ, the work that was accomplished on the cross and the tomb, we know our sins can be forgiven, but it does not eliminate the consequences. Let me remind you of what it says in Galatians in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled, people. God will not be mocked. His word says what? Whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. You want to sow to the flesh, and you'll reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. Rabbi Zacharias says sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Yes, thankfully we know the blood of Christ covers our sin. We do not lose our salvation. But what? I read this week that sin causes a festering sore. A boil that needs to be lanced. Ah, ah. This is a horrible picture. It's ugly. Today in our text, we see ugliness. The ugliness of sin on full display. As I told you before, I'll read portions of it. It's hard to read. I'll tell you, tell you the rest. Pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Verse 1. Now Absalom... David's son had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. The story says that they come up with a scheme to feign illness and sickness so that Tamar would come and cook some food for her brother Amnon. Pick it up in verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Chapter 4, uh, verse 14, but he would not listen to her. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Abnon hated her. Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than love with which he loved her. Three points I want to give to you this morning. The first one is this. David, we'll see, displays anger without action. Number one, David displays anger, rightfully so, without action. Here's the story. David's firstborn son to his wife, Ahinanam, 
was named Amnon. Perhaps because he was the oldest son from that particular woman, that particular wife. He, he regarded himself as an heir to the throne. We do not know for sure, but he certainly lived with a dangerous sense of entitlement. And the sordid story goes like this. He has a half-brother and sister whose names were Absalom and Tamar, both of them born to another wife of David whose name was Maacah. It's interesting that both, both Tamar and Absalom were unusually beautiful children. Remember, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the fact that all of us fall into two categories. Either we are possessors of beauty or we are observers of beauty. A few of you fall into that category of possessors of beauty. Most of us are just observers. There's danger. You have to be careful. A little bit on Tamar, it says in, in verses 1 and 2 that she was beautiful and it says that she was a virgin. But there's a lot that's actually written on Absalom. There's a description later on in chapter 14. It says in verse 25, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. So there's division amongst the family. Back to Amnon who became infatuated with his beautiful half-sister so much that he, he devises a scheming plan alongside of a very crafty cousin and he feigned sickness so that his sister would come, would make a meal for him so that he would feel better. Instead, what does he do? He actually violates, he actually rapes his own half-sister. And what happens as a result of, of any illicit behavior, you see this sadly all around us in the world, that people step outside the boundaries of marriage, step outside the boundaries of God's word. And it says that this love, this so-called love, it's really just lust, turns into a hatred. And then hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. Ugh. It's hard to even read portions of this. And what happens? Word finally reaches the ears of the king. David hears about this offense, this incest within his own family. And direct your attention to verse 21 of 2 Samuel chapter 13. Listen to this. And when King David heard of all of these things, he was very... Angry. Understandably so. The old King James says that he was very wroth. I think that's a great descriptive word of how anyone would feel. Father would feel if he hears something like this took place in his own family. So he was angry and what? Okay, what's next here? So he was angry and he called his son Abnon in to confront him, right? He was angry and he called Amnon in to correct him, to admonish him, to punish him. After all, he was the king. According to his own daughter, Tamar, she knew what in verse 12, such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous. 
Another translation reads wicked. Another translation reads disgraceful thing. So what is it that David did about this horrible act? He gets angry. And what does he do? He does nothing. There's no words. There's no action that is taken. What? Why, why did he not rebuke Amnon? Why did he not take the side of his daughter in this terrible injustice? Why did he not require punishments? According to the law, it says in Leviticus chapter 20, if a man does something like this, he is to be held responsible. He is to what? Bear his iniquity. And yet David does nothing. What is he here? What is David doing? He hears of this offense. He's furious. And with his inaction, he describes his passivity. He's passive. He sits silently. He does nothing. He is dead wrong. You think about a passive father. An absent father. A father who, in a sense, is, is present in some levels. He's there. He's working hard and he offers a paycheck. But he, he refuses to get involved. He refuses to engage. I can't help but think that the passivity of David is very descriptive of the passivity of dads in our world and in our culture today. Two years, two long, painful years. I think especially two long years for this dear Tamar. Goes by. Back to Absalom. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is furious. Understandably so. As a result of the offense against his sister. And I, I believe because daddy didn't do anything. Because Absalom knew that what his own dad was silent and passive on this. Absalom says, I'll develop a plan. And he comes up with his own scheming plan. It's kind of interesting to see how this whole what, what scheming idea, as David with what Uriah and Bathsheba, it seems to run in the family here. Absalom comes up with a plan to get rid of his half-brother. 2 Samuel chapter 13, we pick it up in verses 28 and 29. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Abnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, for I have commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. So a brother has his what? His own half-brother murdered. Word again makes its way to the ears of the king that that Amnon has actually been killed by Absalom, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 31. What does David do? It says, then he arose, the king arose, he tore his garments in anger and lay on the earth. 
First, there's this horrible act, and he does nothing. Now, another horrible act, and he does nothing. For the second time, a father simply chooses to live with his anger, refuses to get involved, and does nothing. If you were to think about it, if what, if he had taken action with Amnon, maybe Absalom would have thought twice before he acted. The story continues on with Absalom, then what? He just gets on his mule with his posse and runs away. Goes to a place called Gishore where his mother had been from and he was there for three years. And it speaks about the fact of David then weeping in verses 37 and 39, mourning for his son day after day. Chapter 13 concludes with what? The spirit of the king longed to go out to his son Absalom. He longs to go out, but does he get on his mule and go? Does he go get him? Does he do anything? No. He's laying on the floor, mourning and weeping. David's sins lead to the sins of Amnon. David's sins lead to the sins of Absalom. And we have before us this morning the devastating results of a passive father. No confrontation. No direction, no instruction, no correction, no leadership equals what? Chaos. Chaos. Absolute chaos. And it doesn't end there. That's just the end of chapter 13. I told you this was heavy. This is heavy. Number one, David displays anger without action. Number two, David desires reconciliation without repentance. Chapter 14, in a summary, speaks of the estrangement, the distance between Absalom and his father. David was beginning to feel the full effects of what the prophet Nathan said, what? You will experience evil from within. And so David is, is being soaked. He's, he's under the, the, the waterfall, the downpour of evil from within. And yet he's still what? He's still a father. He still misses his own son. And he longs to see him. He longs to be in relationship with him, but he's caught here. As a king, what he's supposed to show justice. This is what? This is a, a murderer that is on the run. He's supposed to, as king, to punish a murderer. And yet what? As dad, like all of us fathers, he wants to show grace. He wants to show love because he just misses presence of his own son. Again, David simply settles for indecision. It's like he's frozen. Settles for compromise and does nothing rather than displaying godly leadership. Thankfully, 
prior to this, David has surrounded himself with some good men. Praise God for good godly men surrounding you. One of those men, what his military commander, whose name was Joab, senses David's heartache, perplexing heartache. And so Joab comes up with a plan in order to draw Absalom back to Jerusalem, which he does. To save face without seeing his son, David places him under what we would call today house arrest. And another two years go by without Absalom and David ever meeting. Absalom, I can't help but think of what, like any spoiled child. And they are aplenty in our society today. Absalom, knowing that his own father would never lay a finger on him, actually calls his servants, which kind of is descriptive about the rough house arrest that he was under. Because he has servants, he orders his servants to start a fire that draws attention to himself so that he can at least, what? Get some face time with his own father, the king. But I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to look at one particular verse. We'll draw two in just a minute. With Absalom before the king, there's been no repentance on Absalom's part. No, no owning his own actions. There's no remorse. There's no shame. There's no desire to be restored. There's no asking for forgiveness. No admitting his wrong. He is in all out rebellion and in chapter 14 verse 33 he finally comes into the presence of the king it has been years there's four words four words that cut to the very heart of our message this morning second Samuel chapter 14 verse 33 and the king kissed Absalom the king kisses Absalom. Now you will think for a moment that I am the cruelest person that could ever live. You will think for a moment that I am the coldest person on earth. But when you hear this action of what David has done, let me tell you this. If you hear nothing else this morning, remember this. You, even as a father, are never to snuggle up to sin. You never snuggle up to sin. Yes, you are to hug your children. Yes, you are to snuggle with your son or daughter in a holy, healthy way. But you are not to condone and ignore their all-out rebellion against the holy God. Remember that. David was so blinded by the love for his own son that he forgot about the love for the one who took him out of obscurity, took him from the back 40 in the pastures and placed him on the throne of the greatest nation in the entire world. David forgot about what his actions were going to have an impact on other people. 
Now, what I want you to understand here is that that Absalom, this person is not repentant. He is not remorseful. This is a man in all out rebellion. And we know this because as the story continues on, Absalom uses his beauty and personality and giftedness to actually cause what? An incredible rebellion. He's drawing attention to himself. He's surrounding himself with other people. Chapters 16, 15, 16, and 17, Absalom spirals into such evil and darkness and deviant behavior, it would make you sick to listen to and to read. He goes on to lie, he goes on to rape, he goes on to murder and steal and plunder. Because daddy did nothing. Daddy never addressed the sin. Now, please, please hear me on this. Yes, we are to always love our children unconditionally, because just as our Heavenly Father loves us unconditionally. Yes, we're to love them. There's no doubt about that. Yes, we're to pray for them in the rebellion. Which means we have to tell them of our love for them. We have to tell them of our prayers for them. Yes, David is correct in weeping. And we are to weep for the rebelliousness of our own children. But we still must confront them. We still must speak to them. We still must tell them that they are what? In complete reproach against the holy God. So there's this difficult balance I understand. How do we love but we don't, we don't kiss? How do we love but we don't snuggle up to? Be truth-tellers. Be truth-tellers. Be truth-tellers. Make sure that you understand what. Keep praying and keep weeping. But don't compromise the truth. And do not condone sinful actions. Thirdly and finally, David listens to truth. Finally, David listens to truth turns from his sin, and trusts his Savior. Now, there's no doubt all of us would sit here and ask, what in the world, what in the world, a man after God's own heart, what in the world is David thinking? But please, please remember, before you ever, ever pick up a rock to throw it at this man, please remember this, the best of men are men at best. Hold on to that. And thankfully, as the story unfolds, again, what? One of David's closest advisors, Joab, praise God for good godly men, actually rebukes the king in chapter 19. Let me, let me move forward to chapter 19. Look at verses 6 and 7. Joab comes alongside of David. Joab says this, because you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you, for you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, for this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. We know as this story fast forwards that Absalom dies horribly, horribly. David is mourning. 
Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab says, what are you doing? What about those that have loved you and served you and spoken truth into you? As hard as it is, we need to be grateful for those who speak truth into our lives, even if it hurts. And finally, at the conclusion of this whole ugly episode, David recognizes his sin and writes what we would refer to as a song of deliverance. Listen to where his focus is. Listen to where his attention is. It's off of himself. And finally, it is on the Lord. Jump forward to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Listen to David as he pours out his heart's in confession, in repentance. For you are my lamp, O Lord. And my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Chapter 22 concludes with these words in verse 50 and 51. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. And sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Boy, there's a, there's a turn here, isn't there? There's a changing in the attitude and the perspective of David who talks about the Lord being the one who actually shines light in the midst of this filth and darkness. What we have before us is a reminder that yes, yes, it does happen. When chaos hits home, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. There is always hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. As David refers to him as the light in my darkness. It, it may not be visible right now. It may be pretty dark right now. But there is always, never, ever, ever, ever give up hope. Keep loving. Keep praying. Keep weeping. Keep speaking truth. And trust the Lord. Number one, learn of the devastating consequences of passivity. Dads, be mindful of the role that God has placed you in, that you are an influencer. You are to live with impact. To choose to sit by the sidelines and let somebody else take the reins and determine the entire direction of the home and family is totally wrong. If you don't reject passivity, you'll suffer the consequences of it. Number two, no, there is no greater responsibility that you have than leading your children to the Lord. Your child is not concerned about how many zeros are at the end of your contract. Your child does not, it, do, it doesn't matter to them how important or influential you are outside the home. What matters to your child is that you are the biggest influence in their life in the home. And the greatest thing that you can do, the greatest thing that you can do, number three, and finally lead in your commitment to the word of God and consistency in your walk with God. Dads, dads, fathers, leaders that are here today, 
Every single day, you need to be opening this word. Every single day, you need to be reading this to your children. Every single day, you need to be praying together as a family. Be consistent in the attention that you're giving to the word of God. And be consistent, what? As men of integrity. Not perfect. When you blow it, as you will do. I certainly have. When you go to your son or your daughter and you say, Daddy needs to ask forgiveness because he was wrong. And we model and we lead by being what? Humble servants for those kids who will come up and they will reflect the influence that you placed. I just sense that there's dads here that this word has spoken to. And today is the day that we gather with our focus on the Lord to get our hearts and lives right. And I want you to know that if you are struggling at home, and it's very descriptive of being a place of chaos, then please make sure you can come up afterwards. We won't make a spectacle of you. We won't embarrass you. To meet with me, any one of the pastors, any one of the elders to pray for you, to come alongside. Praise God for a Joab who came alongside of a David. You realize that there's Joabs in this flock that want to come alongside of you and speak truth, necessary truth into your life. We want to offer that to you. Would you bow our heads and pray with me? Father, I thank you even for ugly texts and hard texts to read and to study. Lord, even from looking at David as, as an example of what not to do, we, Lord, know that this is in your word for reason and purpose. And I pray, Lord, that we, like David, would come to a place of recognizing the areas that we need to change and improve. And we come to a place ultimately and finally of recognizing, Lord, that our hope, regardless of the condition of the home, our hope is in Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would, be, we would be people in this church, we would be people in this community that shine as bright lights, that don't, don't settle for the status quo that exists around us, but we would lead as lovers of you first. Father, I pray for families that are here that, that have children that are in complete rebellion. Father, I would ask, Lord, that you'd give strength and encouragement to moms and dads, to grandparents, to continue to love, continue to pray, and continue to speak truth. We thank you, Lord, ultimately for the hope of healing that is offered through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that even in a fallen world, we get a glimpse of your goodness and your amazing grace, even in times and texts like this. Father, we desire to be obedient to you, but we need your strength and help to bring us to a place of obedience, and we ask for that now. We ask this in Jesus' name.